Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Before I begin this week's episode, I would like to play a promo for a podcast that focuses on true crime and unexplained phenomena and mysteries. So here's the promo for you to hear. A man in Brazil dies from severe burns, maybe from a UFO. In Washington, D.C., Jack the Slasher breaks into a house and barely steals anything, but dumps molasses all over a piano and cuts up curtains and sofas. I'm Andrew Gable, and on Forgotten Darkness, I'll look through old newspapers and other sources to find those lesser-known stories of yesteryear. I look mostly at true crime and unexplained phenomena. So if either of those topics sounds like your sort of thing, check us out. You can find the podcast at ForgottenDarkness.Podbean.com or on most podcast apps. So if you're interested in more not-so-recent and modern cases and not your typical true crime cases, I would highly suggest this podcast. So go check this out after you're done with this episode. Now, let's start today's case. Welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. I'm very happy to say that at the end of the month, this podcast turns two. This is definitely something I never imagined myself doing, but now it's something I cannot imagine myself not doing. Without all of your help and support, this podcast would not be a thing, and would not exist. So, thank you all again for giving me a chance and for sticking around. I know I haven't been on schedule lately, and I was sick, and then I got busy, and then it was my birthday, so everything kind of happened, but I do vow to try to stay more on schedule, and I'm very sorry for delaying this episode. I don't know how long this podcast will or can run for, but hopefully to another year. Anyway, today's episode is another family massacre. I will probably not talk about families being massacred in the coming month or two, although there's definitely no shortage of cases like these. This case is a bit more well-known to many of you, probably, as it's Asian, yes, but it happened overseas in a land down under. I would like to thank listener and supporter A.R. for suggesting this case. From what I know, 
A few other podcasts have covered this case, including Case File. So, no pressure, right? This is the case of the Lin family murders, where five family members were murdered overnight in very cold blood. The investigation took years, but finally managed to convict someone of the murders. But that person, to this day, insists that they are innocent. Let's begin. Brenda Jun Lin was a 15-year-old teenager in 2009. It was July in Australia, and she was ready to go on a school trip with some of her classmates to New Caledonia for a week. Just one week. For teenagers, it's probably a welcome change. A chance to be independent, hang out with friends, and all that. On the day of the trip, Brenda's father, Lin Min, took her to the airport. All her other friends were hugging and telling their family members how they'll miss them and that they love them, you know, that. Brenda kind of just stood there, somewhat awkward. I don't know if it was a teenage thing or if it was because she was Asian, because Asians in general are not that affectionate with physical touch or words like, I love you, or I miss you. Or at least that's what I'm like. So yeah, definitely awkward. Brenda thought to herself, it's just a week, not even that long. She'll be back in no time, and she'll see her family soon enough. No biggie. So she left on her trip, but something happened, something big. During her trip on July 18th, she began to receive messages from her friends in Sydney. They expressed their condolences, and she was really confused. Then she saw a news article about a family of five murdered overnight. She looked at the photos of the crime scene, and as much as she wanted to deny it, it was, in fact, the house she was most familiar with. Brenda couldn't believe what was happening to her life. In fact, the whole situation felt so surreal to her, it took days and weeks for reality to finally set in. Regardless of how she felt, facts were facts. Her entire family, her father, mother, two younger brothers, and her aunt had all been murdered overnight. Let's backtrack a bit. So, who were the Lins? The Lins were originally from the province of Guangdong, China. The members of the Lin family include the father, Norman Min Lin, born in July of 1963, the mother, Lily Yun Li Ling, born in February of 1965, their eldest daughter, Brenda, and their two sons, Henry, born in 1997, and Terry, born in 2000. The Lynns immigrated to Australia sometime in the 90s, hoping to start their own business and possibly find a better life for themselves. They first settled in the suburb of Sydney called Quakers Hill, and around the year 2000, Lin Min, being the perfect traditional Chinese son, helped his parents immigrate over to Sydney from China. He bought a place for them in Marylands, also a suburb of Sydney, only about a 30-minute drive from Quakers Hill. It's very important for children to be close to their parents in traditional Chinese culture, mostly because you have to take care of your parents. Living too far away only makes things harder for everybody. So, not only did the parents come, but Lin Min's sister's family came as well. His sister, Kathy, first arrived with her husband, Robert Xie, in Melbourne, 
they moved over to Sydney eventually. The couple also had a son. So it was a pretty large extended family immigration reunion thing. The elderly parents, their two kids, and their families. Ten members of the Lin family hanging out in Sydney. Not bad for moving away from your original country. At least, it won't get too lonely. Lin Min owned and operated a newsstand, and he was doing pretty well. After all, it was providing for his family of five and his parents. The Lin family eventually moved to Epping, another area in suburban Sydney, not too far from where they were originally. One thing that the Lin family did every single week since the year 2000 was gather at the grandparents' house for a weekly Friday night family dinner. Grandma Lin adored her grandkids, and she made sure she always made their favorite dish. The grandkids were also very close to their grandparents, often offering to help around the house, teach them English words, or just, you know, plain existing. I mean, they didn't have to do much as they were just great kids. Then on Sundays, Lin Min would then drive his family and his parents to different areas and around Sydney to sightsee, to experience the environment, or to try new restaurants. Lin Min was a very capable family guy, and his parents always appreciated him for being so good to them. Life kind of continued on like this for the next nine years, like clockwork. Adults worked and children went to school, and on the weekends they had family gatherings and outings. Hard to imagine something this awful happening to such a seemingly normal family. But then again, nothing in life is certain. On Friday, July 17, 2009, which happened to be family dinner time minus Brenda, since she was in New Caledonia, the Lynn family were gathered around as usual eating dinner and having a good time. When it was time for everyone to go home, the eldest grandson, Henry, who was 12 at the time, put on his shoes but realized they didn't fit right. Turns out the front of his shoe had basically opened up kind of like the side view of an alligator. He turned to his grandmother and told her about this, and she hurried off looking for something else he could wear on his way home. It was then that the grandparents decided that the following morning, they would take their grandson out shopping for new shoes. Except, Henry would never get to buy those new pair of shoes, or any other pair of shoes ever again. Nor would he ever see his grandparents again. Everything went wrong in the early morning of July 18, 2009, which was a Saturday. Grandpa Lynn woke up and decided to try to fix grandson Henry's shoes. He tried to glue the top and bottom together, but soon realized that the shoe was beyond repair. Well, if it can't be fixed, that means it's time for new shoes. Grandpa Lynn called his son's home, hoping to get the kids on the phone. He knew his son and daughter-in-law were probably off at work at the newsstand, but the kids should be home and would be more than willing to come over. But weirdly enough, the phone kept ringing and no one answered. The grandparents grew concerned, but since they didn't drive and didn't own a vehicle, they called their daughter, Kathy, asking her to head over to Lin-Min's house and bring the kids over. Kathy told her parents that she was busy that morning as well, so she wouldn't be able to go check up on the kids. This call was said to have taken place at around 10am, 
and the grandparents figured they would just wait a while and try again later. Maybe Kathy was out running some errands with her husband Robert, because when they passed by her brother's newsstand, it was closed. It shouldn't have been closed on a Saturday morning. He also didn't mention anything about taking a day off from work the previous night, and even if he was sick, his wife Lily would have taken over for him and made sure the newsstand was operating. This troubled Kathy enough, so she herself decided to call her brother. No answer. She started sensing something wasn't right and made the decision to drive to her brother's house with her husband. They knocked, rang the doorbell, then tried the front door. Surprisingly, it wasn't locked. The two called out and slowly made their way up the stairs and upon entering the master bedroom, Kathy knew something horrible had happened. There was blood everywhere and not just in the master bedroom. It was on the walls in the hallway and on the floor, in other rooms, basically everywhere. In the span of just a minute or so, she had seen four bloodied bodies with disfigured faces, two adult women, and two kids. She quickly called triple zero emergency services, telling them of what she had seen. Robert then made a call to his in-laws, who were still blissfully unaware of what had happened. He told them something terrible had happened to Brother Min's family, but he couldn't tell them over the phone. Then he got into his car to go pick them up, and in the meantime, Kathy stayed behind to wait for the police and the ambulance to arrive. When Robert and the grandparents finally arrived near where Lin Min lived, they realized they couldn't actually get close to the house. The front of the house was completely blocked off and filled with police officers, paramedics, ambulances, and possibly reporters and nosy neighbors. At this point, you don't even have to know what happened or go in the house to know that something was really wrong. Imagine that feeling where you want to know what's going on so badly, but you're not informed and you can't get close to whatever's going on. The grandparents panicked, feeling completely helpless. That's when they saw their daughter Kathy come out of the house. Kathy told them that things were bad, like very bad. Four dead. Her brother, Lin Min, seemed to still be missing. Yes, things sucked. Four dead family members, but at the same time, there was a glimmer of hope. If there was a chance that one person could still be alive, that's something. The grandparents thought maybe Lin Min had been kidnapped. Maybe they would be receiving a ransom demand soon. Whatever the kidnappers wanted, they were more than willing and ready to hand it over. The point is, there was still a bit of hope. Let me now give you an as detailed as possible rundown on the crime scene, because knowledge is power and we all need facts. As I've stated before, the crime scene was messy and bloody. Police first examined the exterior of the house, noting that the electricity in the house had been cut from the outside and none of the doors or windows showed any signs of forced entry. Hmm, that actually says a lot. Basically, either the door wasn't locked already, or the perpetrator had a key. Maybe they were invited inside. Let's now enter the unlocked home. Nothing was out of the ordinary. Nothing seemed to even be touched in the downstairs area. It's as if the killer kind of just breathed past the downstairs rooms without a glance and headed straight up the stairs with one mission. 
No drawers were pulled out. Nothing was taken. Heading up the stairs, the hallway had bloodstains, possibly from the perpetrator moving around the rooms while covered in blood. Let's first enter the master bedroom. A woman is lying dead with her face completely disfigured, bloodied. You can't even tell who it is except that it was once an adult woman. Turns out this was Lily, the mother and the wife. Moving on, we find another body with the face completely bashed in as well. This adult woman turns out to be Irene Lynn, Lily's sister, who just happened to be visiting them in Sydney. Then, as you move to the children's rooms, you see both boys, Henry and Terry, or you are inclined to think that it's them. Their faces were also completely bashed in, unrecognizable. Terry was nine. Henry was only twelve. Brenda was not home, but her room, though, on the other hand, was completely undisturbed. The door wasn't even opened. It really does take a whole new level of crazy and evil to murder people like this. Blood was everywhere, on the walls, the doorknobs, and even the ceiling. Police quickly determined that the murder weapon must be something like a hammer, and although the victims were left unrecognizable, they actually didn't die from the blunt force trauma. They died of asphyxiation. This is really up close and personal. The four family members seem to have died in or near their bedrooms, probably ambushed in the dead of night. The police did not find any murder weapons, but there were many bloodied shoe prints of the same pair of shoe, indicating that there was probably only one perpetrator. Now, you may be wondering, where the hell is Lin Min? During the initial sweep of the house, he was nowhere to be found, but there was also no sign of him having left the house either. Or maybe police were beginning to wonder if he was the one who killed everyone the same way John List killed his whole entire family. Police began taking a closer look at everything inside the house, and after a while, they finally found the answer to their question. Lin Min had been dead on his bed all along, just covered from head to toe with the big blanket. Note that it was wintertime in Australia, and they probably had big-ass blankets, so a body underneath may not have stood out at first glance. Anyway, the fifth body was discovered, also face-bashed in with a hammer-like object. The Lin grandparents received the devastating news, which obviously completely broke them. The funeral for the five family members was held on August 8, 2009 at Sydney Olympic Park. More than a thousand people attended the funeral, paying their last respects to a hard-working family that did not deserve to die like this. Greg Smith, a member of the New South Wales Parliament for Epping, talked about how he personally knew Lin Min, as he was the one who would deliver the papers to his office every single morning, since his office was right across the street from the newsstand. The two were not necessarily friends, but they respected each other and acknowledged each other. On the morning the family was found murdered, Greg Smith noted that his paper had not yet arrived, so he went over to the newsstand himself and saw that it was closed. All the newspaper piled up all around the closed gate. Then only hours later, he learned of the truth. The Lynn family was seen as a model immigrant family, hardworking, family-oriented, and honest. 
Lin-Min's parents also talked about how much they loved and missed their family, how Lin-Min was always there for them, taking care of them, and now, this. There's a saying in Chinese about how parents have to bury their children, and it roughly translates to the people with white hair sending off the people with black hair, meaning the older people are burying the younger ones. This is like one of the worst things that could happen to any family. Brenda also gave her eulogy. She said that her biggest regret in life was not hugging her father at the airport and not saying goodbye properly. Now, she would never get the chance to do that. Just reading about that made me sad. Just shows you life is unpredictable. Natural disasters, murdering assholes, you really never know. The caskets were then taken to Macquarie Park Cemetery, where Irene, the aunt, would be cremated while the other four would be buried. Now, back to the investigation. Who would do this? A couple months before the Lin family murders, there had been some break-ins in their neighborhood, so the police wondered if this was a robbery gone wrong. But the whole scene just didn't match a robbery of any sort. Their gut instinct and as well as their detective skills were telling them that this couldn't be a robbery, and the killer most likely knew the family on a personal level. So, what did the police come up with? Let me list them out. First, no forced entry. It was likely that it was someone who knew the ins and outs of the house, knew where the family would be, and knew how to get in without arousing suspicion. Also, the killer did not even try Brenda's door. When police arrived, her room was undisturbed and the door was closed. No bloodstains, no fingerprints. Meaning, the killer must have known that she was not home. Therefore, no need to go into her room. Only someone close to the family would know something like this. The killer came prepared with a weapon and possibly gloves as no fingerprints were discovered anywhere. The police believe that the killer entered the house and went straight to the parents, which makes sense to take out the ones who would pose the biggest threat. Then, possibly during the attack, the two boys and the aunt woke up to check what was happening and then also met the same fate. It's unclear if the rest of the family members would have been killed if they never got up, but it's no use to ponder that possibility now. Police decided to take a look at those closest to the Lin family, and after some brief digging, they zeroed in on one person. If you've never heard of this case before, take a guess. Okay, you guess yet? Answer reveal. Kathy's husband, Robert Shi. So a bit about Robert. Robert was a doctor once back in China, but recently he's been unemployed. Kathy and Robert initially were living in Melbourne, where they opened up a Chinese restaurant, but business was not great, so they left that life behind, moved to Sydney, and began working at Lin Min's newsstand. Kathy and Robert both struggled, and in comparison to Lin Min's family, well, they did not really shine in the whole family tree thing. So, as you can see, Robert wasn't a random target of the police. There were weird inconsistencies with his testimony and his behavior that made the police slightly suspicious from the get-go. For one thing, when they first entered the master bedroom, 
Robert, who was standing behind his wife, had grabbed her from behind and told her to look away. The weird thing was that from where they were standing, there was nothing to see. They couldn't see Lily's body from that angle, and Lin Min was hidden under the covers. Kind of weird, right? But you could also explain it away as, maybe he felt something was wrong. So he told her not to look. So sweet, right? After discovering the bodies, though, Robert was intent on leaving the house, saying he was going to pick up the grandparents, meaning he was leaving his wife there by herself. Why would he do that? It would almost seem as if he knew there was no danger in the house, so it was safe to leave his wife alone. How would he know it was safe? Apparently, according to them, they didn't actually check. Also, as a person with medical training, he never once approached the body to check for a pulse, nor did he attempt any CPR, any of that. Of course, he could have just panicked and felt that they were beyond help. Uh, when police took his testimony, he initially said there were five bodies. But how? Remember, Lin Min was hidden under the covers, and it wasn't until hours later that he was finally discovered. How would he know there were five bodies? This is definitely the most suspicious part to me. The police paid him and Kathy a visit at their home, and while they were looking around their house, the police discovered something that looked like a single drop of blood in their garage. Suspicious? Actually, not really. I mean, it's probably super normal to have your own blood somewhere in the garage, maybe from cutting yourself on something. But what if it wasn't his or Kathy's blood? The police didn't want to risk letting this tiny beam of hope get away, so they went ahead and took a sample with them and sent it to the lab. Boy oh boy, results came back indicating the blood sample contained at least four of the victim's DNA. I mean, that's pretty big, right? But I sort of jumped the gun. Lab testings took way longer than a minute, so that was a bit of a spoiler tidbit. What are your thoughts? Coincidence? Or solid proof? Police were pretty positive about their hunch, and since the entire Lynn family was gone, Brenda, who was only 15, was sent to live with Kathy and Robert. The grandparents initially wanted to take her in, but as they were a lot older, they decided to let Kathy and Robert adopt Brenda into their home. The police were concerned with this arrangement, but they obviously couldn't do much about it without compromising their ongoing investigations. But they did take some precaution. In 2010, the court granted the police permission to set up cameras inside Robert's house, not just to monitor his behavior, but also to make sure nothing bad happened to Brenda. After all, she could literally be living in the enemy's den. The police not only managed to get evidence that pointed to Robert's guilt, they also found camera footage that horrified, disgusted, and pissed them off. Since there were hidden cameras in the house now, the police decided to conduct this little experiment with the husband and wife. Remember there were bloody shoe prints found inside the Lynn residence? Well, results came back indicating that the shoes were a match for a sneaker from the brand Asics, A-S-I-C-S, and the shoe size was around 9.5 or 10. The police on multiple occasions had asked both Kathy and Robert to return to the crime scene and give their testimonies again and again, 
trying to match their version of what happened that day. I guess they were hoping to find inconsistencies or maybe Robert would slip up and give away the wrong detail. Robert himself even phoned the police to explain that in his initial testimony, he meant that he saw four bodies but thought there might be five, which is why he said five. Okay, calm down, Robert, as if this makes you look less sketchy. So, this is where the shoe plan came in. The police told Kathy in private about their findings in regards to the shoe print. They told her it was confidential information and to keep this to herself for now. They were, in fact, very sure that she would share this information with her husband. And ta-da, she did. As soon as Robert found out about the shoe information, he was caught in camera taking out a shoebox with the label A6, A-S-I-C-S, on it. He took a pair of scissors and began cutting the box into small pieces. Then he proceeded to flush it all down the toilet. Sketchy behavior indeed. I get that people do this sometimes without thinking things through in order to avoid being accused later on, but come on. This wasn't the only instance where he was sketchy. As for the something else caught on camera, well, turns out he was also a predator and sexually abusing his niece, Brenda. So now the story seemed a lot more complete to law enforcement. Initially, the police wondered, if the killer wanted to annihilate the whole family, why not wait for Brenda to come home and get everybody? Maybe, maybe this was the plan all along to get Brenda alone. After a few more months of surveillance, the police officially arrested and charged Robert Shea in 2011 for the murders of the Lynn family. Of course, he denied, denied, and denied some more. His wife Kathy, of course, insisted that her husband was innocent and that he would never do something like this. He is a good father and a good husband. Kathy went around looking for the best defense lawyer she could find, all the while sticking by her husband's side and pleading for him. Although he was arrested in 2011, his trial was not set to begin till 2013, but due to reasons that were never disclosed, the trial was delayed till 2014. During the first trial, Grandpa Lynn took to the stand to talk about what he learned about the murders and also explained how the murders affected him. He also recalled the day of the murders and how before even finding out his son was also dead, under the covers, Robert had casually mentioned something about Brenda moving in with him and Kathy since she has no one else. I mean, who says that? Like, right after the murders. Brenda Lynn also took to the stand, revealing to the court that her uncle had been molesting her even before her family was murdered but it only got worse after moving in with him. The court was shocked and appalled, and honestly, Robert deserves no mercy for that. A witness came forward during the first trial, Robert's cellmate from prison. He claimed that Robert had confessed to him that he was in fact the one that murdered the entire family. But then again, I would take that with a grain of salt. The second trial began in August of 2014. The prosecution team stated that Robert's motives were simple, jealousy of Lindman's success and sexual attraction to Brenda Lynn. Assuming Robert was the killer, it would not be a coincidence that he picked that time to commit the murders, and without his brother-in-law around, he would no longer be belittled or feel inadequate about his shortcomings, 
He was also positive that, with Lim Min gone, Brenda, a minor, would automatically be put into their home. The fact that he was caught on camera molesting and sexually abusing her really did him no favors. The third trial took place in February of 2015, and Robert again pleaded not guilty. Robert's defense lawyers explained to the court that all the quote-unquote reasons for murder were simply theories, and there was no proof that Robert hated Lin Min. Also, considering how five family members were dead, it was more than likely there were multiple perpetrators, as it would be difficult to restrain and kill them all. Both sides made their arguments, and after 11 days of deliberation, the jury was unable to reach a verdict. So, things dragged on. A retrial was set for August 2016, and in the meantime, Robert was granted bail. The only person excited about that was probably Kathy. As you could imagine, the media and the press hounded the couple every single day. Why'd you do it? Did you kill them? How are you feeling? Every time they were approached in the streets, they chose to ignore and continue walking. I guess at this point, less talk is the way to go. The grandparents were convinced their son-in-law was the bastard who killed the Lin family, and they were hurt, they felt betrayed, they were angry. They tried to talk to Kathy, but Kathy wouldn't hear any of it. Kathy instead tried to talk to Brenda, even accused her of lying about Robert molesting her. This is so disgusting and sad. I can't say I completely blame Kathy, though. She must have been going through a terrible time, feeling all alone and maybe even deep down, part of her feels guilty. But nevertheless, she still chose to stick by her husband's side, and as that was her choice, she has to deal with the consequences. The final trial began in June of 2016, and a majority verdict was finally reached. After eight long years, Robert was found guilty of five counts of murder and was sentenced to five life sentences, without the possibility of parole. Justice served? I guess that's the best outcome one can get at this point. Justice Elizabeth Fullerton described the murders as, quote, a single episode of brutal and calculated murderer's violence, a course of offending that can only be described as heinous in the extreme, end quote. At the sentencing hearing, Brenda Lynn decided to give a victim impact statement. Here's her statement. Quote, It's been seven and a half years since I lost my family. That is seven and a half years without a loving mother, seven and a half years without a loving father, seven and a half years without two exuberant brothers that were my best and closest friends, and seven and a half years without an extremely kind aunt. In this time, I have finished my HSC, was accepted into uni, got my first part-time job, and I learned to drive. But I have achieved all these things without my family beside me. These inherently happy moments are now, at most, bittersweet. They have now become a painful reminder of the family I have lost, and I will never see again. End quote. After the verdict came out, the grandparents expressed their gratitude and their satisfaction with the court's decision. Their relationship with their daughter, Kathy, is obviously not the same. Kathy felt betrayed as well, and mostly kept to herself during the entire trial. 
the grandparents went to the cemetery and paid their deceased family members a visit. They also burned a newspaper detailing Robert's conviction, the same way Chinese people burn money, well, fake money, for the dead to use in the afterlife. They really wanted Lin Min to know the details, and hopefully, that would bring him some peace. I watched a clip on YouTube where the grandparents talked about this ordeal, and it was so sad to watch. I could almost physically feel their helplessness and sadness, and not sure if I would categorize this as survivor's guilt, but they felt so much regret for one incident. The night before the murders, remember their grandson Henry's shoe? How it was falling apart? Well, they actually had an idea to have Henry stay overnight at their house so they could go shopping in the morning, but they didn't mention this plan. It was just a fleeting thought, and to them, it became one of the biggest regrets of their lives. Sure, maybe Henry could have dodged a bullet, or maybe the murder date would have just been postponed. As someone looking in from the outside, I think it's not reasonable for them to place this kind of blame on themselves. But as a person going through it, it's a whole different story, I suppose. Grandma Lynn shared a very touching story about her grandson Henry. In school, he had to fill out his personal information and also add an emergency contact. I'm pretty sure we all did this when we were kids. I don't know about you though, but my emergency contact was always my father, for obvious reasons. He could drive, he had a car, and he was able to communicate in the language that our school used, whether it was English, Spanish, or Chinese. Makes sense, right? And trust me, my dad had to get me from school so many damn times, he would literally think, ugh, not again, when my school called. Sorry, dad. Anyway, Henry Lin was not like me. His emergency contact was his grandmother. She did not own a car, she couldn't drive, and she didn't even speak English. This just showed how special Grandma Lin was to Henry. And instead of putting someone more practical, like maybe his dad or his sister, he put his beloved grandmother. I think that's pretty sweet, isn't it? So there you have it. Almost an entire family slaughtered overnight in what definitely was not a robbery of any sorts. Do you believe Robert Shea did this? He still insists on his innocence to this day, and his wife Kathy still stands by him. The fact that he continues to deny it really makes me wonder. I think if he was the killer, he couldn't really come out and say, okay, fine, it was me. He would lose the only person that had been supporting him all this time, his wife. Robert Shea has always remained calm, showing very little emotion, during the investigation, the trials, and even right after the murders. I can't call him a murderer for having no facial expressions. But this fact, partnered up with everything else, he's definitely looking guilty. May the dead rest in peace. May the living continue trekking in life. And may the guilty rot in hell. Till next time. Before I go, I would like to thank these people for giving me reviews. So last time I played a promo called Stories After Dark, a true crime podcast about the Philippines. So thank you for your positive review. 
Also, Kalanu843 from the U.S. and Burwadi from Canada. Thank you all very, very much, and I truly appreciate that. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.